A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like family. And Mm. when I say family, I'm talking about art family. Because for me, there's an amazing thing that happens with art. I feel like it can connect and speak to us just like a sibling would and kind of bring us up and kind of um, help us grow. And I'm not mentioning family just for that reason, because today we are joined by two siblings of perhaps, well, in fact, the greatest artist to ever walk on this earth. And that might sound like a classic Rob Diamond exaggeration and uh, Mm. over the top Mm. statement. But the truth is, um, the artist we're going to discuss today pretty much was the greatest artist to ever walk on earth. And I'm sure most of our listeners will agree, because today we are here to talk about the legacy and life and work of Jean-Michel Basquiat. And we're going to be meeting his two sisters who grew up with him and have just uh, curated and staged the most extraordinary exhibition, which is currently on in Los Angeles. um, And it's called King Pleasure. It first debuted in New York um, in 2022. And now it has gone to the Grand in LA. And we're going to be talking about this incredible show, which has over 200 paintings, drawings, personal artifacts, and even a recreation of the family home. So we are very proud. This feels like a really monumental moment in the journey of talk art to be talking with the two sisters of Jean-Michel Basquiat. So we would like to welcome to talk art Janine Herrivo and Lizanne Basquiat. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. Wow. Wow. That was an amazing introduction. I know. How do you step into that? <laughs> well, step step in, please. Step in. You you we were both you. You. you were both nodding oh, along very, very proudly during Rob's intro then when he said that Jean-Michel is one of the greatest artists to have walked on the planet. This is something that you wholeheartedly believe, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, when he said, you know, one of the greatest artists of all time, I thought to myself, well, who wouldn't know who that was? (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. That was beautiful. So you two are um, the sisters of Jean-Michel Basquiat, and you 
represent the estate of Jean-Michel Basquiat. When did that come to you guys and what, what has that been like? It's quite a big question actually to ask, but what has it been like to manage an estate? And for people listening, what, what is an estate exactly? Hi, this is Janine. Um, oh, that is a huge question. Um, so when my brother passed away, my dad was working in corporate himself. He stepped in, took the knowledge that he had as an accountant to um, manage the estate. And uh, from there, really, it's about pulling in all of the licensing, all of the copyrights, the trademarks, all of those things that are associated with um, an artist, got a hold of all of the works that Jean-Michel left behind and um, got them cataloged and held on to them. And uh, him not wanting to flood the market, that helped to increase the value of the assets. And from there, he uh, also created an authentication committee and the authentication committee allowed people, all of the works that were out there for people to bring them in, have them authenticated. And um, he had that for roughly 22 years, 23 years um, before he stopped that in 2012. And so my dad ran the estate for 25 years. In 2013, he passed away and um, that was left to Lisa and myself. It was quite shocking because we didn't expect our dad to pass away so soon. Um, but we stepped in and kind of took over kind of where he left off. And our vision has really been to elevate Jean-Michel from the point that my dad had to really step out as opposed to as private as my, as my dad was. This whole thing was very difficult for him since he lost his son. And so um, we knew that in order for us to be able to be a voice in this, you know, in this art world, so to speak, that we had to step out of our private lives and um, control or reset the narrative of our brother. And so that's why it was important for us to have this exhibition and to add a layer uh, to you know what's out there right now. The layer, which is him as a brother, as a son, him having a family, what made Jean-Michel become the person that he was, what those influences were as a youngster and all that. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. I, I think it's incredible wherewithal for your, your dad to have known, you know, at a time of Jean-Michel passing, the shock of that, but also to know, to not flood the market and to, to consider his work as something that had longevity, that had a future and the importance of it and how to preserve that. That must have been quite, yes. you know, you said he's an accountant to have that sort of knowledge at that time and to see the fruition of that now, what what that them choices then have achieved now for Jean-Michel. That That's incredible. I mean, it must have been terrifying for him and also that responsibility of that. Was he prepared for that to happen when that did happen? I don't know that you're ever, I don't know that you're ever prepared for the passing of your son. You know, I don't know how one prepares for that. I think at the end of the day, there are a lot of technical details beneath it. And at the end of the day, our, what our dad did was claim his son's 
legacy. His son's, you know, professional legacy is really what he did. And there are a lot of pieces to that. Uh, And for him, it was his way of coming to, it was his way of claiming his son is really what it was. It was his way of showing the way that he loved his son, protecting his son and doing that for the remainder of his life. And the role that Shanine and I have, uh, or that the estate has, that Shanine and I now manage, is really just that. That's really the bottom line is it, uh, to it, which is to protect. We're the legal heir to his copyrights and, and all of that. And our uh, role is to protect his legal rights and his trademarks and and all of that that really is what it is and it's also about us ensuring that his the brand that is Jean-Michel Basquiat is protected and so for us it's you know I think the value of his work kind of speaks for itself that is kind of an art world thing and it's about you know what people choose to spend on this magnificent artwork you know and creative expression that he's left behind uh, and what our role is just to really be his family and to make sure that you respect him and that you mm. um, don't, tra- you know, kind of trample all over his legacy. Mm. And I, I think the new exhibition really brings something that had never been seen before in the sense of the kind of um, the human side, like, like, like you mm-hmm. said, you know, the, the son, the, the brother, the family mm-hmm. member. And I know that the first room is even like a reconstruction of, of the home when you were growing up. And I thought that was so joyous. And so it just, you know, it's something that I'd never thought about, you know, in, in terms of Jean-Michel's work. And it, it's so wonderful to hear the stories of when he was younger and the kind of irrepressible kind of uh, curiosity and cr- creativity creativity that just poured out of him from a really young age and it's interesting for us because Russell and I were both really into cartoons particularly Russell and that was our entrance point in a way with me it was um a friend of Jean-Michel's Keith Herring um on on kind of you know and Madonna, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. yeah. On um, on record sleeves, you know, through popular culture is how I got into mm-hmm. art. And now I run a gallery. Wow. You know, it's like this amazing <laughs> journey. And for Russell, collecting started because of cartoons. And I was so fascinated what it must have been like, you know, as, as his sisters, to have seen that in the household. Yeah, I mean, Jean-Michel loved cartoons from a very early age. He, he really, really did. And he... Uh, uh, loved them so much that he did... I don't know what you call them, Janine, that little animation where you write what is that stop? Oh, like I a guess flip, today, flip book type thing. Yeah, like, where you yeah. kind of flip it. I guess today it would be called stop motion, I guess. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, you know, he would draw on each page of a book. And then as you flipped it, you know, it would start to kind of move around and, you know, just like animation. And <laughs> they were kind of called, I think, fuzzies is what he called them back mm. then. But he always, you know, he always drew cartoons. Um, We have sketchbooks that are included in the exhibition, which shows, um, you know, that illustration portion of of his artistry, as well as um, uh, he was the illustrator for his school newspaper at City As School. So those are also included in the exhibition as well. Um, So he always had that kind of artistic ability. The painting came much later. But um, even as a kid, he was he would always doodle and, you know, do things that were, you know, creative or just whatever he his imagination, whatever came into his imagination, he just kind of really went with it. 
whether it was, you know, I want to see what it feels like to, um, you know, to bake X, Y, or Z. I want to put uh, uh, peanut shells and mix it with bananas and bake it and see what happens. You know, he was never afraid to go with his ideas, uh, no matter how outlandish they were. Can you remember what cartoons he liked? Oh, yeah, all of them. Oh. Saturday, so in Brooklyn, where we grew up, you know, there were Saturday morning commercials. I don't know whether or not they still do that, but on Saturday mornings, it was like the, uh, uh, that's all, folks. What is that? Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, like the Warner, Warner Brothers. Brothers. Yeah, thank yeah. you. The Warner Brothers oh, cartoons. Warner Brothers. And uh, the ones with the, uh, where they would like punch someone and you'd have like that pow and all of that. He loved, you know, Batman uh, and all of those. And so he was really into, he was just really into cartoons. He was into cartoons. He was into yeah. black and white film. He really liked early Hollywood films very much. Slapstick, he loved. Uh, the Three Stooges, the Marx yeah. Brothers, that kind of thing. Yeah. I also read that Mary Poppins was a big influence. Yeah, that was the story. <laughs> Mary... <laughs> yeah, Mary was Poppins that... was a big influence. Um I think her movie may have been out at the time and he convinced me to jump off of an armoire um, with an umbrella um, to, you know, to emulate Mary Poppins. Didn't turn out that well. Um, <laughs> I definitely did not know how to fly. Um, but it was, you know, I'm, I'm here to tell the story today for sure. But these are the kind of shenanigans that, you know, Gemma Show was easily uh, able to, you know, influence people to do things. He was quite the prankster and he just got us to do whatever he wanted. It was, it was I don't know, wild. influence. You were pretty but, young. You know, I think it was more like, I'm your older brother. Hey, do this thing. And you're like, okay. <laughs> she, because she was light. She was the lightest one. She was the smallest and the lightest. And yeah. so I guess he, yeah. you know, that wasn't, uh, yeah. I guess he thought I would float. <laughs> so you you were you are both younger than Jean Michel. So do you remember him leaving the house and going to New York and starting an art career? And was you able to witness the kind of um, energy that he was creating and the attention that he started to receive? Yeah, I'm I'm four years younger than Jean Michel, and Jenny is seven years younger. Right. And so uh, yeah, we definitely remember that time. We remember the the tension you know, with having a, uh, you know, having Jean-Michel tell our dad that he was going to be an artist and he had like these dreadlocks and our, our father was like, oh my God, this guy's never going to be able to take care of himself, you know, because there was no model for what Jean-Michel wanted to do in the world. Creativity wasn't treated in the same way that it is today. It wasn't recognized or, you know, honored, I think, in the way that it is, you know, it's becoming more, um, uh, of a possibility for people, you know, Jean-Michel came up at a time when, you know, the, the path was, you know, you go to college, you go get a job, you work on that job, you know, you, you know, climb the corporate ladder and that kind of thing. And our father being from um, Haiti uh, and us being first generation children, it was a very odd thing that Jean-Michel was proclaiming that he was going to do. And so there was some, mm. some, some tension around that, a lot of fear, a lot of, you know, worry and anxiety about what Jean-Michel was saying he was going to do. So, you know, we definitely remember him, you know, leaving the house and there were a couple of, you know, he kind of left and, came, and then my father went to go get him and he came back. And, and then finally, I think there was this kind of understanding between them that Jean-Michel was 
or at least an acknowledgement and acceptance that Jean-Michel was going to go and make his way uh, and, you know, make his way in the world, you know, that story. Yeah. Yeah. And when he started to become famous, your family name must have been had a lot of attention. You yourselves, people must have seen your surname and gone, are you related? Did you start to feel the kind of the, the rush of attention on him come on to you by proxy? Hmm, that's an interesting question. It is. Um, so I, uh, any place that I worked or if I pulled out my credit card and showed it, immediately it was, you know, are you related? Um, and to be honest, it was... Um, a curse and a, and a blessing, you know, cause you know, if I said yes, um, then it was, Oh, prove it. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> you asked the question. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there were moments, um, early on where I wouldn't say I resented it, but I just was, um, protective of the name. You know, I didn't necessarily answer the question. I just kind of, you know, moved on and said, oh, yeah, I know the artist and and kind of moved on from it, to be honest. Um, but the name always drew attention because growing up as a Basquiat in American, you know, public schools was not an easy feat at all. So it was a name that always drew attention anyway. Right, right, right. And I think my, so I think my, um, you know, earlier on, I felt, you know, it was our name and we were always raised with a tremendous amount of pride for the name. Uh, like you're a Basquiat, like that was something that we always knew and, and felt very grounded in. Uh, and initially for me, people would talk about, you know, the name I'd call utility company or like Janine said, pull out a card and someone would recognize the name, but it always felt kind of like that thing that Jean-Michel does. And later on, as Jean-Michel's popularity has uh, continued to grow and expand, and certainly today with the work that Shanine and I are doing, it is an interesting kind of place to be because there is, you know, attention, you know, where people are asking questions, are very interested. And, you know, that is Jean-Michel's notoriety. That's his, you know, his life's work. And But now Janine and I have also created this incredible exhibition in honor of Jean-Michel. Mm. So there's kind of this interesting thing happening right now around the name. Is it a full-time job? Is it all-consuming running an estate or this estate in particular? This estate is busy. <laughs> I don't know if it's a full-time <laughs> job because we have like four full-time jobs, both of us. Do but, you? Yeah, we have other things going on. But um, yeah, it, it, it's a, he is the, you, one of you said it in the beginning, he's like one of the greatest artists of all time. And it's not just, you know, uh, painting art, it's just one of the greatest creatives, in my opinion, of all times, because he touched so many different facets of uh, creativity. I mean, music and film and art. And, you know, he was like the first social media poster before social media actually, you know, began. Mm -hmm. 
what, what, what was it like in the household when you were growing up um, culturally? Like, did you actually like go to museums together? You know, what kind of things were you seeing in relation to art? Because whenever I see Jean-Michel's paintings, I always think they're so singular because of all these different um, influences, mm. like, like you're mentioning. There's kind of influences from music and influences from like Warhol, from popular culture, obviously his connection with Warhol, which we can chat about later. Fashion. But, but that, yep. and, even, mm-hmm. and even typography and like writing and the written word and poetry and just all of these things so what was it like as a kid were were you guys really encouraged to to think creatively to to learn about different cultures and different kind of uh, creative forms yeah I would say the creative one in our family was our mother for sure she was the one who encouraged us to um, go to uh, museums she took us to museums she took us to Broadway shows she took us to um, the Puerto Rican traveling theater she would encourage us to go to, you know, we lived in Brooklyn, which is very close to Park Slope. So our access to not only the Brooklyn Museum, but we had the, the mm. Brooklyn Public Library, which is a huge um, institution right there in the Grand Army Plaza area. There's also the Botanical Gardens there. So all of that, um, you know, we would do uh, weekend trips with her often. And it was always, um, you know, at, at, at some museum or an institution that kind of pushed us into a more creative way of learning things, for sure. And I think we also had kind of a a unique uh, experience as children. You know, we were first generation in Brooklyn going to public schools. So that in and of itself was like, you know, the teachers would hesitate and struggle to pronounce our names and first and last for some reason. And then, you know, in addition to that, we grew up in Borham Hill, Brooklyn, where we were kind of in an upper middle class area. We were going to public school. And so, and we were raised primarily by our dad, uh, where our parents co-parented, but we lived with our father. And so there were a lot of things about us as a family that were different than a lot of the folks that mm-hmm. we, a lot of our peers, a lot of our schoolmates. Uh, we also lived in Puerto Rico for a couple of years uh, when we were, um, uh, I was about 11 and Jean Michelle was like 14. And so there were so many different things about our life that was uh, very different that I believe also helped or you know, led to Jean Michelle thinking about the world in a different way than say some of his you know, school peers did. Can you remember the first time you saw an exhibition of his in like Manhattan? Did you ever visit his first like gallery show or have an opportunity to be around that sort of hubbub of the art world from a young age? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was the first show. Um, the one that I remember clearly is um, a show at Anina Nose. And, um, you know, I walked in not really understanding, I was, you know, I was much younger and um, not really understanding the art world and kind of what all that was. Um, I do remember that there were an incredible amount of pieces that were up Mm. and there were a lot of people in the room. They were, you know, talking about it and, you know, Jean-Michel seemed really, really happy. And um, it was, it was amazing to watch him in his element Mm -hmm. and, you know, being able to appreciate 
the reasons why he left home and, you know, pursued his career and to actually see it live and uh, to feel the energy in the room was um, a very proud moment for myself. And Lizanne, did you, did you, was you there at the same exhibition? I was, I was. For me, it was just, it was really interesting just to see all these really artistic people and the way they just seemed so very different from any the weirdos yeah (laughs) the eccentric people you know it was like the eccentric people and it was just a very different experience than anything I'd encountered before and it was really nice to see uh, Jean-Michel in that world so for me that was the first my first entree into you know getting some insight into Jean-Michel's world and what he had created for himself when did your um Dad, then after after the initial clashes of his like, unconventional career path, when did he? When did you feel like there was a connection where he realised, "Oh, you are actually doing this. This is conventional for you. This is working." <laughs> um, so actually, Chef Michelle, um, after not kind of uh, being overseas and doing other things, I think at the time he was doing Downtown Eighty One, and he was out of the country um, and going back and forth. He had an exhibition and I'm not quite sure what it, which one it actually was. Um, he arrived home. Um, it was seven 30 in the morning. I was getting ready to go to, to school. My dad um, and stepmother were getting ready to go off to work and the doorbell rings. We always looked out the window to see who was, uh, you know, who, who rang the bell and it's Jean-Michel. It looked like he had been partying all night. He arrives in a limousine in a, like his suit was, you know, clearly he had been out all night, um, this beautiful mane of, of locks. And um, he rings the doorbell. My dad answers. And he's like, Papa, I made it. And he pulls out this wad of, this wad of cash and he hands it to me. And my dad is like, what the heck? Like, what are you doing? Um, and it's interesting because that is, you know, Jean-Michel always said that the only way that he would arrive back home in order to kind of prove to himself and to my dad um, that he had made it as an artist, that was the only way he was going to arrive. And so um, for him to actually come back and do that was pretty badass. And our dad was also like an action person. So for him, it was like he needed yeah. to see something. You know, there's like yeah. the dreaming and it's like he needed to actually see something. And I think that him having the opportunity and the ability to see uh, Jean-Michel come back and then see Jean-Michel in, you know, really walking this path of creating a place for himself within the art world gave my father some consolation. It's very sad that, you know, all of that didn't have a chance. You know, there are things that happen in our 20s and, and it's very sad that there wasn't able to be, like things weren't able to really come full circle. You know, there's some things that take time and uh, I, I do feel sad that Jean-Michel didn't have the opportunity to move past the depression that he was feeling, you know, and, and yeah. that we didn't have the opportunity to, um, I'm just sad that we lost him, honestly. This is all fantastic. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. And I'm so grateful. And I know Janine is too, that we have the ability to, in some ways, work with Jean-Michel on this project and on managing his estate mm. because he's always, for us, front and center in the decisions that we're making. Uh, and it's uh, very sad 
that he's not here. Mm. I've been incredibly grateful to both of you um, for putting this show together for that very reason, because I myself lost my brother when I was 14, turning 14, and he was 17. And he also died died from um, drugs, but it was a kind of club scene thing, like ecstasy. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, like, how would I feel if, you know, if it had been a similar thing? My, my brother was actually a musician, but he never became, you know, published. But I think he would have mm-hmm. been if he'd lived longer. So I'm really kind of have empathy and kind of uh, I just feel very grateful that because it must be so uh, powerful for you um, kind of emotionally just to even stage this show and to kind of go back through all of these personal belongings because the show has you know personal artifacts alongside artworks that have never been seen before and even you know recreating his studio and uh, recreating the nightclub and you know uh, I know you've worked with David Ajay as well he's an incredible human being um, in his own right but I just, I just think it must, it must have been a lot, I guess, to 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 approach this. Did did you have a lot of conversations together to kind of help each other gain confidence to do this? You know, we uh, we did have a lot of conversations. Um, it was very cathartic for us. Also, uh, what's interesting is that we were able to kind of process certain times and experiences together that we may have just kind of kept to ourselves. Uh, one thing that we spoke about with our stepmother also is that we all relived our experience of the night that we heard that he passed. And, um, you know, for the most part, all the details were the same. But when it's it's from your perspective, it's very different to hear somebody else's perspective. And I think that that was very cathartic for us. Um, it gave us some closure with respect with respect to that evening. Um, but it also gave us a new kind of found understanding of where we all were at that time and since mm-hmm. how we have felt about uh, the loss and how um, this loss has affected the three of us um, and, and how we work together, how we, you know, so, so much. And, um, you know, just... Um, accepting the loss of my my dad and you know our also our mother as well so um it's um it's been it's been cathartic as I said before I don't know if you've experienced this Robert or not with your the loss of your brother but it's like you have that initial grief and you experience the emotions of that initial grief but the loss of a person is not this one and done you know, two weeks into it, it's, you know, you just kind of move on. It's like an evolving thing. And as you grow and evolve, your perspectives do the same. And so for me, it was just like this deepening and and, and painful, but also, like Janine said, quite cathartic uh, view. I mean, one of the things that we really thought about during the writing of the catalog that we wrote in three months, by the way, mm. <laughs> I don't know how we did that. <laughs> it's a lot of writing in three months. It's your family work. I, <laughs> I know, I know. It's a thing. It's a thing. Um, I think it's your father's instilled I, that for sure, and I think his mother actually instilled it before. Really? Yeah, on both sides. Yeah. But I think for us, it was really for me. It was this looking at things from a different perspective and seeing and focusing more on what happened in our family when our father and mother lost their child, kind of looking at it from that standpoint in a way that I wouldn't have at 24 years old. 
you know, so it's like a, this process that doesn't really end. You continue to think about your family members and, and you know, your the people in your family that are gone, but differently. I think there's a common thing as well as a sibling that sometimes you you think it's your parents' loss and somehow even though it is your loss you kind of worry about them and you never quite admit that it was it was your kind of loss as well. It took me until my 30s to really admit that. I was wondering if maybe putting the show together if you kind of feel you can express your your kind of love and your 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 pride and your connection to Jean-Michel in a way that maybe you hadn't done it's before. It's like you were there. Yes. I think it was the first time to kind of acknowledge like, wow, we really kind of held back our own loss and grief because how do you compare your grief to the grief of, you know, our parents losing their child? And so that is right. exactly, exactly what we, um, some of what we experienced during this exhibition, pulling mm. together this exhibition. I guess in some ways, some people forget that he was a real person right. and a brother and a relationship because he's such a brand. Exactly. And they must exactly. talk to you in such a way that's quite cold and quite callous, like just not remembering at all, not even realizing or, or considering mm-hmm. the emotional depths that go to your relationship. Exactly. Absolutely. I think some of the earlier, um, you know, we didn't always want to do interviews. And some of the earlier ones were, you know, oh, we heard that um, that your, your brother came home, said he wanted to be an artist and your dad threw him out. <laughs> You know, or um, uh, another good one is, oh, this must have really, the death of your brother must have really, you know, uh, set you guys up with wealth. And, um, you know, how do you, you just kind of shake your head when you hear, you know, stories like that or, or, or questions like that. Um, because and, cause clearly the person has either not experienced it or just, you know, there to, get whatever questions answered that they they need to. And so um, that was another reason why it was really important for Lisan and I and our stepmother to um, humanize him and show, you know, people, his fans, any, you know, and one that was interested that this was a human being that we lost and that we grieve for him on a daily basis. Um, This is not just about, you know, of course, there is a legacy that we are trying to preserve and protect. And, and that's a tremendous burden. Not that there is any resentment to that, but it's, it's huge. And we don't take that lightly at all. Um, but there is also this person that we wish were here to you know, carry that on for himself. His work had such a sensitivity to it. And I think that's also something that sometimes gets lost in the kind of noise of like superstar artists or even, you know, if you think about any kind of celebrity, any film star, anything. The reason they're often successful is because they have this sensitivity and they have a kind of solitude that they can, you know, share the deepest parts of themselves, which I think, you know, Jean-Michel had in kind of so, so much of this empathy, passion, love for the world and kind of wanted to to share. And I remember meeting um, the artist Stanley Whitney um, about 15 years ago for the first time and he was telling me um, that back when 
uh, Jean-Michel was getting exhibitions. You know, Stanley himself wasn't really getting exhibitions. And it was really hard for black artists um, in the 80s to even get an exhibition. And he would know all the galleries and he'd know all the artists, but he'd never get shown. And um, Jean-Michel was kind of a pioneer in that way. And I think he's opened doors, Absolutely. you know, not just emotionally for all of us, but, but become this kind of artist that has changed, you know, still, the still fabric opening of doors. our society. Yeah, yeah, still yeah. opening doors and minds. Yeah. What, what can you remember any kind of anecdotes or any kind of stories around, you know, his first exhibitions? Because I know there's so many artists that weren't getting shown. You know, I, I think even though Jean-Michel was getting exhibitions, it still was, you know, he still was not getting treated the best necessarily. You know, he still had to face art critics that were very critical of him. Um, when he did interviews, they a lot of them were very disrespectful to him, to his methods. It was almost as though they didn't believe that he had the talent that he did. They questioned his his methods of of approaching the work, um, the source materials that he used. Um, they you know accused him of copying from books as opposed to really absorbing what it whatever it was and and you know, putting it on canvas. So it was, it was, um, you know, he did have a lot of people that were in his corner, but it was, it was rough. And I think that he navigated it the best that he could. Uh, but, you know, there was, there was racism that he faced in his everyday life and racism that he faced in, in this world as well. And so he, as I said, navigated it the best way that he could. And so it is, so incredible and just so um, my pride is just overwhelming at the place that he is today. He did see a lot of his success at that time, but he was constantly, you know, uh, worried about whether or not he was getting um, the, the, the right recognition that he deserved. So uh, for him to, I hope that he is seeing it today. And I hope that he is uh, seeing um, the, the, the vast and diverse audience that he has affected and inspired, for sure. Yeah. You mentioned um, your stepmom earlier. This is Nora Fitzpatrick. Mm-hmm. And I read that it, Nora was the one that suggested maybe it was time for an exhibition in around like 2017. And you were talking about it for a few years. Mm-hmm. And then in 2020, you opened the exhibition King Pleasure in New York City. What I mean, how was it? What was that like pulling that all together? And, and why the title King Pleasure? What, what, what did that come from? Uh, so just to correct you, uh, we started working on it in 2020. Uh, we thought that that was a nice, calm time to, uh, you know, to start working on exhibit. Um, also, with all of the things that were happening with George Floyd and um, all the other people, uh, men and women that were being murdered at that time, we thought it was um, a pivotal time to start a conversation with Jean Michel and also um, a time where um, it would be good to kind of come out of this pandemic with a celebration to New York City. And so we wanted to make sure when we did finally do it, we wanted to make sure that the jump between 2017 and actually saying this is the time now, we wanted to make sure that we were able to do this um, on our own terms, where we were the curators, that we were executive producers, um, you know, that we financed it ourselves and were at a point 
in our lives where we could take it on fully. You know, the estate was another animal, but that we would have the time in order to, to, to do it. Um, I must say at the time I said my complete hats off to curators who do this every day. It's, it was a huge undertaking for us, but it was one that we knew we wanted to do it to, to, to su- success. And we made sure that we worked on it uh, nonstop and that um, we really had um, that our message was clear and that the gift that we wanted to give to his fans um, would be seen by them. And what we were looking to accomplish of showing him as a human being and all the facets that he has were received by the public. And we think we were successful at that. We, um, you know, by all of the comments and support that we've received from people. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Yeah, for sure. And also, I just think his work was so prescient and so kind of, you know, the the subjects he was tackling, you know, like police brutality and, you know, just inequality and all kinds of inequality, you know, from like within America, but also Puerto Rico and um, Hawaii and kind of all these different these different um, stories that were in the within the work. What I think so powerful about the show is that it shows people that they, too, can use their voices through their creativity and go from from that in order to reach out and help others. Right. I think part of it also, you know, for 2020 or doing it in 2020 was about really helping Jean-Michel to be an inspiration. You know, one of the challenges we were talking before about some of the challenges that Jean-Michel had during his lifetime. And, you know, in a lot of ways, he was this profound, incredible artist who constantly was being asked questions as a way of getting him to prove his worthiness, to prove um, himself or to point to things that he did not necessarily want to have to prove about himself, like his own humanity or his worth as a Mm. black man or Mm. his, Mm. uh, his intelligence as a human being. Those were the 
things that stood in the way of people really during his lifetime, quite frankly, being able to learn more about him because no one asked. The questions that they asked yeah. were the questions of people who were asking, who were looking at him through a lens of uh, that that was filtered through their own belief systems and through their own race, you know, their own racist uh, thoughts. And mm. so mm. what we're able to do today is to provide some of that context that Shamisha would have provided had anyone asked him. You know, they, you know, right. and, and you look at the videos that are available today of different interviews that he had um, where the interviewee is asking him these questions that are just absurd, really absurd. So for us, this was the timing and the context was really to help people to really hear Jean-Michel when he said through his work that, you know, Black is beautiful and that you know, put a crown on your head. And, and that's, you know, all of us, no matter, you know, what, it, what our skin color, put your crown on your head, like understand that. And then also let's pay attention to what's happening in the world, colonialism, racism, capitalism, you know, sexism, all the isms that, you know, that we're experiencing uh, in this world. And so the world gave us the opportunity to really, show this very same things, the very same topics that Jean-Michel was holding a mirror up to four decades ago, you know, are still the same topics that you can look at today at the artwork that's in the exhibition to say, oh yeah, police brutality. Oh, you know, a woman and her body and, you know, and, and who owns a woman's blood and her, her body, you know, or in the royalty gallery, uh, looking at, you know, a painting, an untitled painting with Jesse Owens and looking at, you know, the arrows kind of pointing toward his legs and the flow of blood through mm. his veins. Um, you, you know, unfortunately, mm. those things are still happening today. And that's, I think, mm. part of what makes Jean Michel's work so um, evergreen. Mm. He's yeah, almost sure. working like a prophet or a clairvoyant in some ways. And it is deeply depressing that that is the Absolutely. case that it is 40 years on you're you are able to look at them paintings from that long ago and go oh yeah that's still mm -hmm. the case now that is deeply upsetting yeah. and incredibly but, important but also, you know I, that I, they're I, there yeah and i also feel like they give people such agency and strength and hope and energy to keep on do you know what i mean there's there's just in the mark making in 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 the actual texture of the paint in the passion within them you know mm. we talked about the work ethic earlier but you know your brother was super prolific and had this kind of need to create and i even heard that you know he used to speak about some artists that you know passed away before their time and he he almost had this urgency like like he just knew you know what if that happened to him maybe he just had right. to make everything mm -hmm. now in that moment mm -hmm. and I think that's what's so vital about the body of yeah. work it's it's just second to none really yeah but I also want to speak about the things that were joyous about Shem Michelle you know sure. he was quite the prankster he <laughs> um you know he loved to tell jokes he loved to play practical jokes on people he was a incredibly generous, incredibly generous. You know, he, um, there was one time where he came over and, um, you know, 
he wasn't one that just came over and brought a book. He would come over with TVs and VHS <laughs> tapes and VCRs. And, you know, he, um, he, he loved to share and he loved to give gifts, whether it was his paintings, whether it was, um, you know, whatever it was, he wanted to share all the, the, the things that he was, that he received. He wanted to share it with others. He shared with his friends. Um, he was very thoughtful. Um, if he gave a gift, it was very, very thoughtful. He just loved people and he loved being one-on-one -on -one with them. He loved one-on-one -on -one conversation. Um, you know, I have been in his presence where we were walking down um, in the Bowery and he would sit down and talk with someone homeless and ask them, you know, why are you here? What got you to this point? And so, so he was so caring about people and he really, really um, uh, had a heart for those that were disenfranchised and was, weren't doing as well as he was. Um, and he was always willing to, you know, uplift someone and, 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 and help them out as best as he could. And I really liked the fact the show in 2022 was in New York and now Los Angeles because of the, the creative kind of spirit and connection to all these different disciplines. And I know that Blondie was one of the first people to ever buy one of his paintings. And um, I even recently met with a, a um, kind of guy in London called Ivor Bracker, a, a woman I think who, who, I can't remember her name, unfortunately, but I think she dated him for a while. And she was telling me this story about how he used to like draw on napkins and constantly be be frenetically kind of making art, like, mm -hmm. or, or having ideas, even at like dinner. You know, it's like this kind of, I just loved it all so much. What was it like opening in New York when you finally, you know, stood in the show and to be in a place where he'd made so much of the work? And why why did you title it King Pleasure as well? Oh, we never answered it's that. It's music related, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you want to speak to the first part of the question, Lisan, or? Sure, I think going opening up in New York was, it was incredible. It was so good because we had, you know, before that we, so much of this, this um, exhibition was curated like over Zoom, you know, with me being in, you know, in California and, and Janine and, and Eileen, the producer being um, in New York. And so we yeah. would meet in New York at, at Ajay's office, David, Sir David Ajay's office, and we were working with models, you know, and like, uh, placing the artwork on the walls within these models, stepping into the stair at Lehigh building and standing within the models that we'd created was overwhelmingly mm -hmm. beautiful. And to actually stand there and see the walls and see the, you know, be within the wood and to do the work of putting, having the art installed uh, it was really exciting. It was very exciting and it felt right. I don't have a, a, a better word for it. It just felt right. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of the name, uh, we had a working title, but Eileen reminded us that we needed to come up with a, you know, with a permanent one. What was the working and, title? I don't know. It was like Bastia uh, Show was like, or something. <laughs> what was it? All right. <laughs> it's like cel the celebration yeah. of. Um, so it was clear that we wanted to, um, wanted the show to be, a, have a celebratory spirit. Mm -hmm. And so... I was sitting around in, in, in my home and, you know, expressed to 
my family that we needed to finally come up with a, you know, a title. Can you help me out here? And my daughter, Sophia, she said, oh, well, let's kind of look at some of the, the, the paintings, the names of the paintings. And um, she pulled upon one that, that's, that's titled King Pleasure. Um, and then she said, oh, it's an actual, the name King Pleasure is also the name of an artist. Um, a singer. And so when I asked her, she said, um, he's saying Moody's move for love. And literally I gasped because even though I wasn't familiar, I was very familiar with Moody's move for love. My dad played it, you know, at home. There was uh, a DJ by the name of Frankie Crocker, uh, WBLS in New York City. He always closed his, you know, his, his set with this song and we played it at home with Shel Michelle and my dad. And so, but I never knew that the artist's name was King Pleasure. And so just, you know, the fact that he made this painting, I'm sure he knew the background, you know, Mm -hmm. the the song, that history, uh, King, the crown, you know, the fact that Shel Michelle loved to party. We just felt that it was so fitting um, for this exhibition. Yeah. And so, um, I threw it out there and uh, everyone loved it. And and with, with more than 200 works in the show, were there things that you'd never seen before? And was it kind of like, because even the revelation of King Pleasure, like all of these kind of re- revelations continue to happen and reveal themselves through through his work and through his titles and through the layers of it all. With, with, what were some of the highlights of things that you hadn't seen before? You know, or, there's such a difference. Really and, and this is the reason why we just really encourage people, like if you're in the LA area or can get there, come. And this is a lesson that Janine and I learned where there's one thing to look at the work, look at a thumbnail or to look at the work on, you know, on paper. And I mean, physical paper, not works on paper. (laughs) And there's quite another because we did uh, the first few passes of curation we did on Zoom, looking at, you know, different images, deciding which ones to do, researching the, the artwork. And then seeing the work in person is a completely different experience. It's where you get to see the layers that Jean-Michel painted, where he would, you know, create a work and then paint over it and then create another work over it, which to me is a lesson in just, you know, be free as a painter, you know, as a creative don't worry so much about making mistakes. Don't worry so much about editing yourself because you can always go back and fix it or make it what you want it to be. Uh, I think that it also shows people what art looks like or what creation looks like when the person expressing it, it doesn't edit themselves. What unedited creativity really looks like. And I think that for a lot of us who are creative, it's something that we really aspire to, which is to like ignore that critic, ignore that part of you that's like, that doesn't look beautiful or, you know, take back that thought, you know, Jean-Michel just let it all out, uh, which I think is a really beautiful thing and very inspirational. And a lot of, Mm. uh, during our opening party, we had a few folks there who are themselves artists. 
And on that evening, at least 10 people said, I can't wait to get back to my studio to do whatever, whether they were like musicians or painters or writers <laughs> or chefs, you know, yes. they were all so inspired by, uh, by oh. the work and having the opportunity to see and experience his artwork, you know, in person. Oh, congratulations. That's an, that must be an amazing buzz to have that response. Good. You must feel so incredibly proud. We're, yeah, we're pretty proud. Also, I think he would have loved it. He would have absolutely yeah. loved it. And he would have loved that you guys were, were curating yeah. it, I'm sure. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. How many works are in, in the estate? Now, Russell, every other question, we were perfectly fine answering. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. That's off limits. say there are many. Russell, <laughs> you know, the plural. Question, how many <laughs> bottles of wine do you have in your house? The question you should be asking him is how many artworks does no, he have in his yes. house? He's an obsessive collector. I'm not going to ask no. that. Yeah. Okay, fine. Fair He's enough. Probably got as many you, as we talk, like, we talk to Keith Herring's We talk to Keith Herring's estate, and I think the big thing about keeping the estate going and funding that is through licensing of images. Yes. And we see a lot of mm. Jean Michel's works on. Uh, branding on t-shirts mm -hmm. on like lunch boxes and stuff is that is that a huge part of the revenue to keep the estate going is that something that you really have to be active in to get his licensing out there? the works yeah. in storage and everything, thank you yeah. because that's exactly it it really is for those folks who question what we're doing uh it takes something it takes money to actually run jean michel's estate it takes money mm. to protect mm. his interests and so the licensing is a way of being able to do that while also protecting the actual artwork and not having to, to sell it. Do you get pressure to sell it? Do you get people trying to buy works? And We don't do pressure. All the time. We don't get pressure. We don't do pressure. But we do get people. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we yeah. do get people that, that want to buy certain works. But, you know, that's not something that we are um, interested in doing, yeah. to be honest. We really yeah. want to keep it um, in the family. Can you bring King Pleasure to the UK? Please. <laughs> has that been on your Zoom considerations? We have uh, Zoom considerations. <laughs> All good things happen on Zoom. Uh, we've been talking about uh, what to do and, and how to do it. And we've certainly thought about, you know, different parts of the world, but we don't but you'll know soon enough. Right okay. now we're focused. We'll be patient. You know, it's funny. And people ask us this question very often. You know, as soon as we opened in New York, we started getting the questions about what we were going to do next. And for us, we are, what are we, 60 days into opening in Los Angeles. And our focus yeah. right now is really on building a robust programming calendar uh, for uh, mm. people to have the opportunity to come in and experience Jean-Michel's art and the experience of the exhibition in different ways. We're working really hard on that uh, and also bringing through children uh, uh, through Title I schools and bringing as many children through, uh, groups of children through as we possibly can. Uh, and then also having, mm. you know, getting the word out about the fact that the exhibition is there. One of the things that's very interesting about Los Angeles is that it is so disparate. And I think it's it, it's very unique in that way. It's such a disparate city that it really mm. does take a lot 
to get people to really know and understand where we are and that we are in town. Uh, I think Los Angeles people also don't necessarily come out in the same ways or know about where things are in the same ways. And so that's really what we're working on right now. And we're, we're really grateful you know, to be having this conversation because it helps us to get the word mm-hmm. out to people in Los Angeles and also people oh, within yeah. the art world. I think that one of the things that we experienced in New York is that we, or one of the things that we're experiencing with this exhibition is that it's really important to us that people who may not necessarily go to a white wall museum or to an institution, that those folks know that they're welcome at this exhibition and that, 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 that this is a place that they can come and really experience art and experience the humanity behind the the artist. However, I think Mm. that in our quest to do that and to ensure that that message gets out there, there are some who believe uh, that that means that we don't, that we're not welcoming them as well. And so this really is an experience for art enthusiasts, for everyone to come through. And what we want is for those folks who, all the the, the myriad groups of people who really enjoy Jean-Michel and who are fans of Jean-Michel, this is our way of honoring him. And it's for those folks who enjoy museums and white walls and who are, you know, the art enthusiasts just as much as it is for, you know, a third grader at, you know, at a Title I school. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what's so exciting about this show is hopefully a whole new generation of like kids and teenagers and young adults are going to be able to discover um, Jean-Michel's mm-hmm. work. And and you did choose to mount the show at the Grand right. Palais, which is has a kind of surrounding arts community with like Mocha and the bro- um, Broad and, um, you know, that whole kind of like downtown right. LA scene. So it is really easy to find for people who have been to those other institutions. Right. And right across the street from the Disney Concert Hall next door to the Coburn Music School. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then there's an opera opera house that's right there. And so uh, it was really very intentional for us to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My experiences of LA have always been that you have to drive. And I think the story that I love about your brother is that he never drove. Madonna <laughs> used to drive him around when they first started dating. But he had a rental bike in LA and he used to pedal everywhere to get himself around, which just sounds like... And the bike is in the show. But that's also oh, to it? do with racism as well, no, because... Taxi drivers yes. wouldn't necessarily, in New York. Um, if he hailed the cab, they wouldn't, in New York, mm-hmm. they would never uh, accept his mm-hmm. his ride or whatever. So he yeah. had to ride around on the bike. And I liked that symbol of the bike being mm-hmm. in the show. It's like a yes. so many layers, like a fun layer, but also a kind of like social change. Right. Layer. And are those who know, know, you know, those who know about that part of, you know, our history uh, in New York, absolutely know. And I think it's really funny uh, about Jean-Michel riding around in, in L.A. because that's not an L.A. thing. Uh, at all. Yeah, totally. That's a New York thing. In New York, you hop on a bike and you get out there with the messengers and you just ride your bike around and (laughs) yell at taxi cab drivers as they're driving by you. And so um, that is Jean-Michel, you know, doing what Jean-Michel felt, you know, what he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, Russell just mentioned the pop star Madonna. Um, Did you have recollections of Madonna or even Andy Warhol as well, like these kind of very well-known figures? Because at the time, I guess they were big, but they kind of weren't that big. They were kind of beginning their careers in some way, because even Warhol wasn't the Andy Warhol we all know. Well, I think it was a resurgence for Andy Warhol. 
Yes, exactly. And I know Jean-Michel got him into Mm -hmm. painting as well. So, you know, or to paint again. So it's kind of, it's really interesting. Um, What was that like? Did you remember stories of Warhol? Did you meet Warhol? Janine met both. Um, So I, uh, Jean-Michel called us, called us up and um, said uh, he wanted to go to a restaurant um, and he brought over, we met at a restaurant called One Fifth, which is on 8th Street um, in New York City. And um, he introduced us to his girlfriend and he said, oh, she's going to be, you know, she's going to be a big star one day. And, um, you know, we were sitting down talking. He said she was a singer. And I was like, oh, you know, and so she said that she had a record out at the time and it was her first single, Everybody. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do know that song. And then we went back at the time he lived on Crosby Street. And so afterwards, we walked over to Crosby Street and um, we kind of hung out. Um, since I was a teenager, she asked me if I knew a particular dance um, that was you know, popular at the time. Um, and I taught her this dance. Uh, it was called no the Webo. Way. What was oh, wow. it called? <laughs> the Webo. Webo, W-E-B-O. And so it was, uh, it was, it was fun. And so if that was the only time uh, that I met her, but uh, it was definitely memorable. Um, oh. and, and Andy Warhol, the day that the New York uh, magazine, the Sunday magazine came out, uh, Jean-Michel came over with Andy Warhol with a stack of them. Um, I think it was coming out the next day. Um, it was a Saturday night and he came over. We had like a casual dinner and just sat around. Um, I have to be honest, I was young at the time and didn't really know who Andy Warhol was or or just didn't really appreciate him as an artist. Um, But he was very pleasant, very soft-spoken. We had someone that knew him from college. They both went to Carnegie Mellon. And so he stopped over a neighbor and uh, it was a pleasant evening. And I, you know, I think I saw him a couple of times after that, but, you know, it was like if, if we went to a gallery opening, he was there. Um, but he was just very low key, very soft-spoken man. Yeah. And it's amazing the, the influence that Jean-Michel had on him and also the influence that Warhol had on, on your brother. Can you reminisce about that? Do, do, do you remember um, him talking about Warhol or... Um, I think it wasn't necessarily like he came home and started talking about him, but I think just kind of being around them, you could sense that there was a mutual respect um, and adoration for each other, respect Mm -hmm. in the fact that they were um, one kind of for this unusual pair, this older gentleman, this young man, um, but somehow they got each other. They kind of, you know, Jean-Michel, there were still critics you know, uh, talking about him, you know, Andy Warhol is someone that, you know, people are always, were always intrigued by and, you know, had, had something to say about. And yeah, Jean-Michel did encourage him to start painting again. And, you know, that was um, how the whole collaboration paintings kind of came about, Um, Mm. you know, which is actually, you know, out right now um, in in Paris, there's a huge show at the Louis Vuitton Foundation with regards to those paintings. Um, From my understanding, it is getting well-received, which warms my heart because at the time, the critics were horrible um, about that collaboration. So to see that come full circle um, is another proud moment, you know, for us. Um, And so, you know, I think it was a, you know, a typical 
uh, friendship, uh, for sure. Jean-Michel definitely had, uh, I remember him talking about Andy Warhol before he ever met him. And I always saw him as this like, what? You know, like, who's this person? Like, again, this kind of eccentric art world kind of person. Weirdo. Yeah. And then that was another. Total. Yeah. But that was another uh, example of Jean-Michel saying that he was going to do something and then manifesting it and having it happen. You know, who would have thought when he was just like sitting, you know, in our bedrooms back, you know, at home and talking about what he was, you know, how he really admired this person and and would love to meet this person. And then later on, you know, to have manifested that is pretty, um, pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And there's an amazing legend, isn't there, that in the late 70s, I think 79, they met and um, your brother uh, like tried to sell his drawings to Warhol and they kind of bonded over this kind of entrepreneurial spirit in a way. And I love that kind of self-confidence and that belief, but also that that wanting more for your work. You know, he obviously really connected to Warhol. And I feel like that's something that Madonna also Mm -hmm. shared. I think they had this real enthusiasm and belief and they just wanted to express themselves and be heard. What I love about um, one of the lessons in Jean-Michel's life is that, and it's also this thing about the critics, right? You have critics who are critiquing and now you have years later, there's this incredible show that people are just falling, you know, all over. And I think that there's Mm. a lesson to not putting weight on other people's opinions. You know, so many people stop what they're doing because of the opinion of someone who doesn't understand what another person is doing and who, or who maybe doesn't appreciate the amount of weight that their opinion has on another person. And, you know, had Jean-Michel, I can't imagine what Jean-Michel's life would have been like had he, you know, put on a suit, <laughs> put on a suit and become, you know... Uh, an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you know, or something, you know, like what his life would have been like and how crappy he would have felt on the inside, you know? So I think there yeah, really is a God lesson here. And I know there are many yeah. people who come to uh, to Janine and I to say, you know, thank you for this show because it helps me to better understand maybe a child who is wanting to be, who is a creative at heart and wants to do something with it or, you know, to, to have Mm. more acceptance for them or people who talk about Mm. uh, how uh, impressed they are with the fact that our family or our parents held on to so many things, you know, movies, home movies and report cards and membership cards to the Brooklyn museum and some of the other things that uh, people have the opportunity to see in, in the exhibition. There's a real lesson in this. Also, how crucial your family were. Like, he was coming home to you guys, you know, to celebrate his successes. He wasn't doing that without right. you, you know. And I think that's something that I never heard of before. I didn't realize he had that bond right. with you all. And and your father and the pride he must have felt. And, your and you know, your stepmother and your mother. It's like there's there's this whole kind of family unit thing, which is just so wonderful. And I think, you know, people have to remember mm-hmm. that as well. You know, like, I don't know. It's a powerful thing. Love. We are doing this on behalf of our grandparents, our parents, our brother, and the rest of our family, you know, and our children and mm. our, you know, the children, you know, my grandchildren now and, uh, and the children who are going to come later. 
And I, I think that in some ways, and some of that is that Basquiat work ethic, I think that Shanine and I have a way, and I think our father did also, of making it look easy. And mm-hmm. uh, because of the work ethic and because of how passionate we are about this, where it, it's work, absolutely, but it's more, it's a heart project. And it is an incredible, as Jenny mentioned before, burden. I, I, burden or it, it's an incredible responsibility to yeah. have responsibility for protecting someone who is as large a, a, a being as Jean-Michel is and was, and also to make decisions that we believe honor what he would want when he passed away 33 years ago. That's not an easy thing to do. And I think that people sometimes are very generous in their opinions and their suggestions and how they think we should do it or what, you know, uh, their ideas about what we're doing. And that's okay because we're completely clear on our role and what we're doing and what it is to be a Basquiat and what it is to protect Shamashal's legacy. We're really clear about that. Well, thank you very much for that. It is an incredible legacy to protect. And this mm. has just been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. We, we ask every guest that come on the same questions. and We'd love to ask you these questions. I don't know if you're aware that these were coming up. But the first one is, if you could do an art heist, if you could steal any artwork in the world for yourself, what would it be and, and take why? It and take it home <laughs> and live with it. What would it be and why? And also, do you live with your brother's work? Do you have? Do you ever take things out of the estate and go, I'm just going to have that on the wall for like a few <laughs> for a couple of months and then put it back into storage. Do you ever like get to live with the work? We could. Uh, yeah, we could. I don't Should know. Into that. <laughs> I don't know. What would your work be? I'll we do you. we do live with some of Shem Michelle's stuff, yeah. yes. It's very interesting in terms of there's a lot of artists that I would love to to have. I actually am really into cause. Um, oh, yeah. and I'd love oh, really? to have I'd love to have one of his um, his pieces. Like a sculpture, like a sculpture. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, there's something oh, about yeah. it that I, um, you know, it's it's funny when I first saw it, you know, some of the works I, it seemed a pretty pretty scary to me. But there are some of the wood sculptures. Um, there's a huge one yes. that's at the Brooklyn Museum that yeah. um, I, that I love and I'm really drawn to. And so um, it would be him. He started as a, a street artist, graffiti, and and that same sort of trajectory as Jean Michel. That's that's mm-hmm. there must be some sort of uh, connection to that as well for you. Maybe, maybe, um, but it does speak to me for sure. Okay, great. We're He's that a out. wonderful person. He's called Brian. Have you ever met him? I have. You know, I kind of saw him in passing, but I was never officially uh, introduced to him. So I guess I need to make that happen. We um we had the great privilege of going to his studio in New oh, York and we actually interviewed him. And he's he's quite shy and just the sweetest guy. And he's kept in touch and we put a book out Very last generous. week and he's been liking yeah. liking all the posts and like he's so sort of supportive. I always That's feel amazing. like he's on our side. Like he's a lovely he gives people agency, I think, yeah. to be themselves, which is That's kind of amazing. what Jean Michel did too. Yes. I don't no, know. No. I'm battering my brain to try to figure it out. And so here's the obnoxious thing that came up. <laughs> the Mona Lisa. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow well that, that's quite close to us in paris it's yeah. not that far <laughs> the other question we ask is what is your favorite color and why Ugh. my favorite color is uh maroon 
Uh, and that is because mm. it's the color of, there's just a richness to it. And it's like purple and red. And so it's all about the the heart, but also spirit in with the heart. So it's like, it's any shade of burgundy or maroon for me. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And Janine? So it's interesting. I don't have a favorite color. I love color. So um, I think I love all colors except for purple and orange, if I dare say. But I would say the color that I love today, this week, is green, a deep emerald green. Why green? Oh, nice. Um, I don't know. I just think that it looks uh, it looks good on, on a lot of people. And it's just a very vibrant color that um, that just that just works. Love that. And the final question is, what is the best advice then that you've ever received when it comes to the estate, the advice that someone's given you of how to protect the legacy? (laughs) I think for me, the best advice that I've ever received is really just looking at the way that um, our father, my father, Gerard Basquiat, handled the estate. And it really is, there's no rush. There's, you know, this is a legacy that we are responsible for and don't sell, just kind of hold on to things, just really honor his legacy and honor, um, honor what he left. I think is the bottom line to that Mm -hmm. and do everything, treat the, treat his estate and his artwork with honor and with humility about the whole thing. I'm just going to say, you know, stay focused on your mission and what your mission is for his legacy and um, ignore the noise. Mm. Mm. Very good advice. Can I quickly ask one more thing? Did did you two learn something about each other in the in the process of doing the show? Do you you feel like you've connected on a way that you hadn't done previously? Hmm. (laughs) Yes. What I've learned about Shanine is that this was a loss. You know, Jean-Michel, us losing Jean-Michel was a loss and that we've processed it in different ways and that there's more for us to learn about each other. Yeah, I just think that we had a a newfound appreciation for kind of our individual working styles. And um, even though we're very different and our work styles are different, our mission is the same. And, you know, how we're approaching Jean-Michel and his legacy, we are very much on the same page. Mm-hmm. So oh. it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to be able to collaborate that way. Yeah. Well, thank you both so yes, much for your generosity, thank for your you talent, both. for your inspiring um, the world um, via you. your brother's uh, show and legacy. And for everyone who wants to see the show, fly to L.A., get to L.A. any way you can. Um, it runs until the end of July, I think the 25th the of, of July. Mm-hmm. 31st, isn't it? 2023. Is it 25th? Oh, 31st, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but you must go see it. It's an extraordinary show. And also, uh, Risley are publishing the most beautiful um, exhibition book, which you can also get if you aren't able to see the show um, in this iteration, but there will, I'm sure, be other opportunities. Yes, much like Jean-Michel, we're going to manifest that it comes to the UK as well. 
we know. We're going to manifest. We're going to manifest that, that King Pleasure yeah. appears in the UK yeah, somewhere in the future. Believe it with all of your heart. <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing it. <laughs> and also, there's an amazing website, kingpleasure.basquiat.com. And also, you can follow on Instagram. Um, there are official accounts. One, which I actually wasn't following because I didn't realize there was an official one. So if you, you're not, you must follow. It's the estate of Jean-Michel Basquiat, and it's Basquiat Official. And also, Basquiat King Pleasure. There are two separate accounts, and they're both extraordinary archives and kind of um, a place to, a resource, if you will, for discovery. So, um, um, thank you so so much this has been such an honor and a major moment in our show like we've done 250 episodes and no joke that's been one of the most touching ones mm. we've ever done and thank i'm you. so grateful to have this um hour and a half yeah. with both of you a thank really you. great great thank conversation you, thank, thank you. you so much for having us and we'll be back very Stick soon around. thanks for listening bye. bye you've been listening to talk art with robert diamond and russell toby follow us on instagram at talk art where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by jack northover subscribe to talk art at apple podcasts spotify acast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts give us a rating and write us a comment thanks for listening spin your passion into a business with shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout let's hear that one more time the world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.